You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Our lessons from Tom Vanderbilt's book, You May Also Like, uh, it brought up an, an interesting, um, I think, problem a lot of us have when we are dealing with... Um, with likes or dislikes, one of my beliefs is just because you have a preference, right, doesn't mean that it it has to be that way. And I learned this with my kids, um, that they can have a preference for what they want, but it doesn't mean we always choose that preference. Everyone can have likes or dislikes, and when it comes down to it, we, we need to figure out how to maybe try new things. Um, maybe that won't work for us today. My wife and I have learned a crazy little secret with our own kids that sometimes it's better to not tell them what we're doing. Because the minute we make an announcement about what we're doing, everyone's going to have an opinion. And with six kids and one of them married with a husband and a grandchild, we don't have time, I guess, to make it perfect for everyone. So we always try to just instill the idea that let's just try it, right? We can try it. If you don't like it, we don't have to like it. If you push too hard on people to try stuff, a lot of times you'll just create an immediate rebellion. If you if you don't push hard on people to try stuff, then they're never going to learn what else is out there in the world. So there's a fine balance, isn't there? And any parent knows there's a fine balance to getting their child to do something, to try something but also do it in a way that we don't want to destroy the game. It's the balance of, uh, you know, the goose and the golden egg, Aesop's fable, that you want to keep getting results in life, but you've got to do it without destroying your ability to get results tomorrow. Any parent can get something to happen today. I can get my kids to eat their vegetables. But if I get get them to eat their vegetables in a way that uh, actually hinders my ability to do it next time, then I'm becoming less and less effective. Our goal is to be able to be effective long-term, to be able to get results today and be able to uh, get them again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And uh, Tom's work uh, in the example he was giving about, uh, you know, his getting his father to try a new drink or a new beer or a beverage it's uh, it's probably very appropriate for all of us to learn. If we want to get people to try new things, then you probably need to model it. That hey, this this does this does well for for you. They they can see that it it offers you an opportunity, and maybe start where the people are. It doesn't mean that they even want to change their beverage choice, but you can at least offer it. And if you're offering just a taste of something else, you might want to take it, folks. I mean, I know we all kind of fall into our entrenched stubbornness at times. But if somebody offers you a chance to try something different, try it. And know that there's nothing lost here. Just try stuff. Try it. We don't need to revert back to the, you know, the five-year-old that's not going to open his mouth to try anything new. When you're, you know, when you're 45, you can just choose to 
try some new things. And amazingly, my trying and, and tasting of sushi 10 years ago changed my life. Thank you. Thank you. Changed my life, folks. But for 35 years, I had said, nah, I don't eat raw fish. That's just horrible. It's choice, folks. Don't force choice. Choice is inevitable. Just create a great space where it's worth trying. And it's easy to try. And it's easy to fail as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Doing a little coach's corner for you here. Now, the breakup between Great Britain and the EU, it's it's like a... It's like a, it's a bunch of friends that you lined up years ago, and now they just don't get along. They just don't get along. So what are you supposed to do? And who do you go with, right? Do I go with my best friend, Great Britain? But I, I've really come to love and appreciate the other partners. Mm, I don't know. I don't know what you do. Well, the EU gives you financial benefits. So is your friend more important than financial benefits? No, because I feel like I can use both of them equally. How many times on the show have we talked about collaboration and the need to work together? The need to, I mean, we live in a global economy. We live in a global marketplace. And now Great Britain's going to kind of go it alone. But they still need markets, right? They still need places to put their their goods they still need trade and i guess they're assuming or believing that they'll just be able to pick that up so it, it may not be an all or nothing kind of mentality it it's this is a it's an interesting concern about isolationism in fact it reminds me of um this story that i read oh listen to this poor guy a colombian sailor found alive after two months adrift in the pacific A sailor has been rescued after spending two harrowing months lost at sea, witnessing the deaths of his three shipmates and forced to eat seagulls for survival. 29-year-old Colombian sailor was picked up some 3,500 miles from home, far out in a desolate stretch of the Pacific Ocean. According to the U.S. Coast Guard, he arrived on dry land in Honolulu on Wednesday. Can you imagine finally seeing ground? Landed on in Honolulu, saying the sailor was in good condition and happy to have survived. The sailor told officials his group of four set off from Columbia more than two months ago. When the engine of their 23-foot skiff failed, they found themselves adrift, and they were forced to eat fish and seagulls to stay alive. He told the Coast Guard the bodies of his compatriots were not on board anymore, the tiny vessel, when it was found, but the sole survivor was able to produce their passports. So they had to be let go, probably. He was also found with a soccer ball, wasn't he? No, that's 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 another show. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. this isn't. This is a different. This is a real life story. This is not. Isn't that other one a real life story too? No, really. No, that's a movie. That's a movie. I thought it was a documentary. No, Castaway. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a movie. It it was it didn't happen. But this is the music. I appreciate how you played that music behind this. But this this uh, was a real story of a guy that had to. I mean, I guess eventually these guys died, and then you just throw them into the ocean. That's what you got to do. You can't have them. 
Cam just dead there next to you. Can you imagine? Sometimes that's how I feel. Alone on an island. Or just alone in a skiff. With a dead body next to you? With a dead body named Ben. Sleeping on the board. (sighs) That's what I'm afraid of for the UK. Be careful. Be careful going off on your own. Sometimes you might just be adrift for two months. And have to eat seagulls. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You just learned about our uh, physical health, right? You gotta, you gotta lose the soda. And I'm going to say, <laughs> just for my own sake, you gotta lose the sugary soda. The 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 cancerous uh, acidic soda without sugar, totally fine. No, it's not. More water, folks. Now, we tell our kids all of these things, and yet, uh, isn't it hard? Um, we, we heard earlier in the show the story about the son who called the police because his dad ran a red light. Mm, thanks, Dad. There's certain things that they see out of you, right? Uh, they see how you handle stuff. They see what you're doing. Your kids are watching you. And they don't really have a shot at a healthy life if you don't provide it. And I'm not here to make you depressed because you're just such a horrible parent. Because you're not. But they're watching. They are watching. And if we want any hope of being able to lead our families, we, we probably need to master ourselves. And find one thing, just one thing. And maybe soda is the way to begin. If you know you're a big soda lover, soda drinker, deal with it. Find a way to break the habit. And I wouldn't personally just go diet. I've been diet and that doesn't help. I find that about three times a year I quit soda for about a month. And then I go out with a bunch of friends and I watch them drink soda. And I'm like, oh, you guys are lucky. Can I just smell your drink? It's, I feel like I'm an alcoholic and I never had alcohol. So how do we break a habit? How do we break it? And But also one of the things I'd think about is instead of building the story and the belief that habits are hard to break, let's find a better reason to have the habit. Why Why would it be valuable for you to get rid of the soda? Well, my kids would be healthier. We would save money. Yeah, what else? We've got to figure out a way deep, deep down to drive this meaning much deeper than having it be about soda. And you don't even – you got to be careful. You don't want your identity to be, well, I don't drink soda. I've never had sugar on my lips for the last six years. It drives me crazy when we become so adamant about one thing and we've created our entire identity by not doing something. You also need to have your identity being something you do do, something that you are, right? It's, I guess, easier to say what you're not, but sometimes we need to know what you are. So it's not just about a soda war. It's not just about I'm a lazy bum and I can't get off of sugar. You you also have to find what you are. And as soon as you can connect to that deeper meaning in your life and the deeper purpose of what you're about, you'll see that it's not about soda. I have a belief that if we could connect to our deepest, most spiritual self, 
we wouldn't drink soda, right? We also probably wouldn't make fun of people and we wouldn't yell and we wouldn't hold grudges because there's a deeper, better side of all of us. And uh, But our body is constantly battling that. So if we want to fix it, you don't necessarily have to just bare knuckle it and hunker down and get rid of everything in life that tastes good. You might also just want to figure out a deeper purpose for who you are. And again, you don't also have to go sit on a mountain like a monk and meditate. What it might simply mean is I got to just figure out why health is so important to me. And it might simply be because it gives me a body that works, and when my body works, it makes this life a little easier to live. It gives me a chance to live longer so I can learn more. If I can figure out why I'm even on this big ball of mud, this planet, then I want to be here to to learn. I think I'm here to learn. And if I'm slowly burning the candle at both ends of my life, then my learning is going to be short-changed. And short change simply because I like sugar. I again, I don't think I don't think your God is up there sitting like I cannot believe he's drinking another super big gulp. But your conscience might be telling you something, and it might be telling you something because you know something about you. You know that you're not drinking enough, or you're not eating enough vegetables, or you're not being the person you need to be, and you can just, I guess, go medicate it by, you know, escaping and getting away from it. Or you could just dig a little deeper and find some other way to connect to a deeper reason why you want to do, why you want to get healthier. If it's just about getting in the bathing suit, I promise it won't work. You might get in the bathing suit, but, you know, it might break or it might not last very long. There's always the deeper reason. And so get out of your body Get out of your mind that kind of justifies everything we do. And let's get down to our spirit, that uh, deeper inner connected being that you are, and see what it's telling you. It's, it's, it's still telling you no matter what, you're loved, you're a great person, you're wonderful, even if you're drinking, you know, cola. And it's also telling you, you can stop. You can moderate it. You could get in charge of it and lead it a little bit more. Everyone's going to have a trial. Everyone's going to have a challenge. Everyone. If your challenge are sugary drinks, okay. But no, that's not the real challenge. The real challenge is becoming the best you you can become. And you're not bad because you do it. You just you need to figure it out. No matter what the addiction or no matter what the uh, the craving is, right? Interesting stuff, folks. That's the Coach's Corner. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when job hunting, uh, you know, we've got a lot of stuff we got to make sure happens. Got to do a lot of preparation. You have to update your resume, contact your references, maybe even make a sweep of your social media profiles. But is the most important thing that you actually could bring to the job search, maybe it's just your optimism, your smile perhaps. 
Michelle Geelan, uh joins us now. She uh, wrote a wonderful article in the Harvard Business Review titled, Optimists Are Better at Finding New Jobs, based on some research she's been doing. And uh, Michelle, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you're, you have a, a new book out, too, called Broadcasting Happiness. Is that where a lot of this research came from? Yes. Uh, the book is revolved around this idea that there are our mindset uh, that fuels success, fuel long-term levels of success. And my research colleagues and I have done uh, extensive research at uh, many large organizations looking at how those play out and how to accurately test for them. And the main and biggest one we found is work optimism. Hmm. Now, because this is huge, and I've heard so much lately about uh, kind of the lack of engagement at work. And so it seems like if you, I think there was a study out uh, by, was it Pew? Um, about 70% of people at work are disengaged or, or not engaged, which would tell us that if you're an optimist, you're either probably going to go find a new job, I guess, or you're going to be the one that's engaged. Yes, absolutely. It, it very much goes hand in hand. Um, what we find is that uh, the organization able to either find people who are naturally more optimistic or and or foster a greater sense of optimism while they're at work, uh, they actually um, find that engagement scores are higher as well. Um, optimism, the definition is very interesting. I didn't entirely understand it until I got into this research. Yeah. Because a lot of people miss misthink optimism. They go, oh, it, it's about putting on rose-colored glasses and thinking everything's going to be okay. And actually, when we look at the research, study it. It's the belief that good things will happen. And in the face of challenge, it's the belief that our behavior matters to make those good things happen. So it's a very empowered mindset. Huh. It's the belief that good things will happen and the belief that uh, we can we can influence them? That's correct, that our behavior matters. So we have, we have agency, we have a sense of empowerment, we can take action steps. So you, know, you mentioned um, earlier about optimism playing a big role in finding a new job. When I lose my job and I'm looking for a new one, if I maintain a belief that I can affect the situation in a positive way, I'm going to update my resume, jump on LinkedIn, and do all these other positive activities. The pessimist might get around to eventually doing those activities, but it just takes them because they believe ultimately that negative events are permanent and pervasive. Mm. So I lost my job. I might not be unemployed forever. You know, it's not permanent forever, but it's going to be a long time before I find one. And this is affecting a lot of domains of my life. So no wonder my marriage is going to be suffering right now. Absolutely. And uh, just that very belief that good things can happen, like like you say, it's not only going to impact – if you go look for another job, I mean, you can see a pessimist that has maybe only got five more years to retirement might and and has been at the job 20 years. They might be thinking, well, I don't want to do it. I don't want to rock the boat now. I'm just going to ride this out and and maybe wouldn't go ahead and and risk either making their life better at work or wouldn't risk necessarily going to look for something different because they don't think it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. How lonely. I mean, it's life is hard, isn't it? Is is are you born an optimist? Do you learn optimism? Uh, well, the exciting thing about the research is that actually optimism, as well as those two other predictors of success, are 
entirely malleable. Yes, you are born at a certain level with all of these things. And so genes definitely play a role. Environment plays a role. Um, happiness researchers, positive psychology researchers look at this idea of a genetic set point when it comes to your happiness. But they quickly tell you, hey, it is malleable. You just got to train your brain to look at life differently. You want to see, you know, for lack of sometimes better ways of explaining it, you want to try to train your brain to see the glass half full, all the things that are working and going well, the people that are invested in you, the meaning embedded in the work that you're doing, the things you're grateful for. If you can train your brain to first see those things, you're actually fueling not only your current levels of optimism, but your long-term levels of success as well. Do you... um I guess I guess that's that's so hopeful, right? Because now all of a sudden it's not. Yeah, we're just a happy, optimistic family. And like you were saying earlier, it's not just burying your head in the sand and you know making everything seem rosy either. Right. So um, in my book, I told this story, and it was it was so funny as it all went down. My six year old niece, um, she's a doll. She came up to me one day. I came over to her house, and she said, "I've been ostrich sized to my room all day." <laughs> and I said, <laughs> "So my husband, who went to Harvard, uh, and her parents went to Harvard, he loves to make a joke that oh, she's using big words because her parents went to Harvard. She's now misusing them because they later went on to Yale." <laughs> oh, there you go. That's <laughs> it. Ruining the children. <laughs> a step down going to yell. Um, how, how... What I, I loved about, about that word was that's so relevant to how the approach that so many of us can sometimes take when we want to maintain a maximum of happiness, right? We want to stick our heads in the sand and not be aware of the problems at our organizations or things going on in the world. What we're finding now, though, from all the research we're doing is that there's so much more productive path whether you're losing your job, whether, you know, I mean, really any challenge. It's to celebrate successes, both in good times and bad. Get your brain focused on all of those good things. And then in the midst of challenges, to focus on solutions. Let's talk about what's to come. Let's talk about the way that we can make a difference in this situation. Anything else, the complaining, the yada, yada, that that doesn't fuel long-term success. And so the, the less amount of time we can stay in those zones, the better off we are. Yeah, because yeah, I guess having a belief that your behavior will change things, that like that agency you're talking about, that empowerment, it does kind of – it forces you to not whine anymore and instead get solution-oriented, get – start doing something, whatever you can do. Uh, yeah, and a study that we just completed, I did this with um, my research partner, Sean Acor and Ariana Huffington, we looked at the difference between just merely talking about a problem or pairing the discussion of the problem with a discussion of solutions and how that relates to future problem solving and mood. And what we found is, and, and by the way, the way we did this was um, we tested people's mood and uh, and creative problem solving abilities, exposed them either to an article just about a problem, so hunger in America, right? right. Or we exposed them to a, uh, an article about that same problem, same article, but then it went on to discuss things that you could actually do in your your neighborhood right now to help alleviate hunger, like fundraising or, or donating to a food bank. And then we tested their problem solving and mood again. And what we found is that when you start talking about solutions that people can take right now on subsequent unrelated tasks, these are unrelated things to what you were just talking about, Creative problem solving increases by 20%, mm. not to mention the mood improves as well. So what that means is, for, for instance, for managers who are leading their teams through tough times, you actually can talk about the negative 
but do so in a way that maintains engagement, creative problem-solving abilities, and general better mood among your employees. It's so true. So, I mean, this is there, there's an entire movement in positive psychology about this, uh, and and even in organizational behavior about appreciative inquiry. It's the very questions you're asking, right? So, if you're only asking like so and talking about the problems. And if you do it too long without getting into some kind of problem-solving mentality or, or solution generation uh, orientation, you're going to decrease your effectiveness. And you may even burn your people out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, I think the biggest job of the manager is reorienting the team's attention to the parts of their reality that are going to be fueling to them. Mm. Yeah, and, and keeping – Keeping the upside up, I mean, it doesn't mean there's not going to be negatives, but you don't – the the longer you stay in the negative without moving to the, you know, the, the, the opportunity side, um, right. you're going to drown them. Uh, let's take a break. We're, we're speaking again with, uh, with Michelle Geelan, and she's a um, – she is an author – uh, and a writer. She's she's done extensive research as well. She has a wonderful website. If you go to michellegeelan dot com, you can you can find out more about that and her book, Broadcasting Happiness, which are tools, folks, to uh, to understand what's going on. And it's hard. The minute we say optimism, you can almost tell people like, oh, geez, here we go. Just blowing smoke. <laughs> more with Michelle Geelan when we come back, folks. We're going to continue to uncover this, give you some more solutions for how you can up the optimism in your life. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, helping you live longer and lead healthier, happier lives. And if we can, improve relationships along the way. And would you believe it? Uh, one way to um, feel better about life, to to get better jobs, to 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 make it work for you, because life's not easy, is optimism, and not just you know the squishy, soft kind of optimism. But uh, according to our, our guest, uh, Michelle Geelan, this is optimism that gets some serious results. Michelle's the author of the book Broadcasting Happiness and is the founder of the Institute for Applied Positive Research. She's an executive producer of The Happiness Advantage, uh, which was a special on PBS and featured professor in and a featured professor in Oprah's Happiness Course. Michelle, we appreciate you and welcome you back. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Talk about, um, I mean, when you think of optimism, there's, there's got to be some, some ways, some solutions and tools that we can use to get it to be more a part of our life if it doesn't just come natural to us. Absolutely. And um, so you mentioned Oprah's happiness courses are some of the same habits that I shared during the course. Um, what the main thing is to do is to remind ourselves that our brain, while it, our brains are amazing, we do have limited resources with which to experience the world. You can't see everything happening all at once, right? Right. Um, as a matter of fact, researchers have found that in, in any given second, our brain can process 
40 to 50 bits of information, but our brain's bombarded by more than 11 million bits of information per second. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible what we're able to do, but also just the sheer magnitude of the information that flows at us from all of our nerve endings. So what that means is inherently there are choices to be made on how we devote our attention. If we are walking into a room, walking into our company, coming home after a long, busy day and seeing our family, and we're first focusing on all the hassles, complaints, problems, stresses, and challenges, we literally do not leave our brain resources left over to experience the meaning embedded in the work that we're doing or the time we're spending with our family or the great thing that our two-year-old made in the art class for us and we're getting to see it. I mean, we don't have the brain resources to, to see all of that stuff. And that is the fuel for optimism and the fuel for a happy brain long term. Um, so as we you know, talked about earlier, optimism is a belief that our behavior matters. It's the expectation of good things to happen. So the more times we can account, hey, this this turned out well, or this is going to be well because of X, Y, and Z. I mean, legitimate factual reasons. The more we build a higher sense of optimism long term. There was a study that worked with 80-year-old grumpy pessimists. <laughs> I think I work with some of them. I don't know if they were in the study or not. <laughs> and they, uh, they tried to get them to basically be more optimistic. The habit was exceptionally simple, and it's something that anyone listening could adopt today. Um, they had them write down three new and unique things that they were grateful for each day and for a period of time. So the gentlemen that were able to keep this habit up, new and different each day, uh, for a period of six months, researchers found that they went from testing as mo- low to moderate level pessimists. They then started testing as moderate level optimist after the practice the other way yeah by just looking for things you're grateful for unique yes oh wow new and unique each day and the key is here is what we're showing our brain repeatedly is the meaning the gratitude the the things that provide a hopeful picture for us right hey i'm loved i have these family members who care about me or my job's actually working well because of this and all of a sudden your brain starts to connect the dots and then it it falls more easily into this default optimistic state wow no, I mean, we've heard about that, right? You know, be grateful, <laughs> think happy yeah. things. But the reality is, is if you can turn a bunch of curmudgeons from a from a low to moderate pessimist into just a moderate optimist by something, how, how long did the did the study go? Was it a month? Um, they they've kept it up for six months, um, but they actually started to see changes in as few as fourteen days. Wow. Because you're looking um, so for that, it, right? Yeah, you're just spending your mind, your mind at focus, your energy is being focused on something that's additive, that's that's appreciative. Yeah, and, and these small habits make a huge difference. I mean, in our work, so I, I speak at companies across the, the United States, but I also go overseas, although I have a two-year-old now, so I mostly stay stateside. Yeah. Um, but, uh, we, you know, I share the, the other, some of the other habits, um, this concept of the power lead. What are you, what's your broadcast? What are you leading with when you talk to people? And can you switch that up instead of saying, oh, how are you? Oh, I'm stressed. Oh, I'm tired. Instead, start with something positive, a power lead. So by saying something simple and positive and meaningful, oh, I'm doing great. I had breakfast with my son this morning. He's being so cute. But what we see is that as a researcher, if I know the first few words of a conversation, I have a high degree of likelihood of predicting the outcome of that conversation. Interesting. Starting, 
You just have to own the beginning. You own the intro. Yes. Yes. And you have the power then to set the stage for how other people respond to you because they're not going to come at you then probably with something negative if they see you're starting in a positive state. Again, this is not about ignoring the negative. If something's going on, we talk about it and take a realistic assessment at the present moment. But in the meantime, we celebrate the good and maintain a belief that our behavior matters when challenges strike. Wow. Is it um, – and again, as you say, we don't – it's not like we don't address that there's issues going on. But you, you could eventually turn that conversation to the more difficult issue. But you, you want to build up, I guess, the reservoir of optimism first. Absolutely. So we worked with a gentleman out in California at a tech company who was a manager. He would get a report of all the bugs issued overnight on their computer system and then come to his team and talk to them about all the fires they needed to put out. He was stressing them out. They were all leaving the meeting, the morning meeting, completely stressed. And what he decided to do was just do a quick switch up of the power, the lead of the meeting. One thing he was grateful for about life in general, one about the team in general, and one about someone specific on the team. And he said that five second intervention transformed the tone of the meeting increased within a three or four week period you could see an increase in productivity social cohesion cohesion of the team and and ultimately the quality of their work because people were so much more deeply connected they felt appreciated and everything changed wow again basic yeah but profound huh and, and again a team now that's probably a manager now that people want to work with that's not right. sucking I mean, the life out of them if we if we can start focusing on all that's working right, as one study found, you can increase their, the entire team's productivity on average by thirty one percent. I mean, just getting the getting people to focus on the things that are working and they're doing well—that's rational optimism. That's that's a, the best devotion of one's resources. Rational optimism versus irrational, and that, I think that's what it is. People look at it like. You can't, it's, you can't be optimistic. It's cancer. But yeah. you're still fighting yeah. cancer, right? So if you still have to fight it and you're going to fight it, you may as well send as much energy to what else you love in the world also. You, you can do both. Yeah, and across the board, when you look at optimism in relation to medical outcomes, personal health outcomes, uh, you know, as we've been talking about the work outcomes, family, relationship, it is is incredible fuel. You have a cancer patient who's more optimistic. Well, guess what? They're going to show up at their doctor's appointments. They're more likely to follow doctor's orders, take the medicine that they need, and complete treatment because they believe that their behavior matters. And so ultimately, they have higher success rates in the face of cancer or in the face of anything that they're facing. Um, so optimism is is the grease that you need in your car. It's, it's the best. Um, but, you know, we talked about rational versus irrational. My husband, who's also in this uh, same line of work, he went to give a talk to a company and the CEO totally was into the information and wanted to, you know, ripple it out to his company. So he offered my husband a ride to the airport. They get in the car. The guy does not put on his seatbelt. Sean, of course, clicks on a seatbelt because he's, you know, he's yeah. doing what he's supposed to do. He's got to come home to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, so Sean turns to the guy after a while, the lights ding, 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 the bell, and it's going off. And he said, oh, you don't wear seatbelts? He said, no, man, I heard your talk. I'm an optimist. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, no, dude, you're an idiot. I'm yeah. sorry. Because like, optimism yeah. won't stop cars from hitting us. We're striving for rational optimism in the, <laughs> you know, in the face of challenge. <laughs> That's such a great analogy. It's not an airbag, for heaven's sakes. It's just optimism. 
but it will make you feel better when you're recovering in the hospital, right? It'll it'll really lift your life. Um, Michelle, it's I, I love that it's uh, so science backed and based. This this movement to positive psychology. I mean, I know you spend a lot of time there, yet it's it's not foo foo. It's not just soft stuff. It's it's a very real results oriented approach. And what I love, though, is the optimistic side, you, you can address the exact, the exact same data by talking about what's working, what has worked, what could work, um, versus just demeaning what do, or and, and focusing on what doesn't work. It's just what direction you're going to take the conversation. And it's up to us, right? Yes, we have the choice every single moment. Um, what attracted me to positive psychology and the research is, you know, I'm originally a computer engineer. Yeah. I love the data. I love the science. It's stuff we've been talking about in every major religious tradition to, you know, positive thinking. But what the science shows us is what what's the smallest thing that we can do to really, in a long-term way, train our brain to see the world differently. Um, and so, you know, I ended up Leaving computer engineering, I went and uh, went into journalism, so much like you, and um, and was uh, empowered by this idea that we can share information that can help people. Um, the only thing is, I didn't get to choose my guests as you do. So yeah, darn it. <laughs> I was at, yeah, I was at CBS News as a, a national news anchor, anchoring two programs there, and the, the newscasts were unfortunately very negative. Right. Um, and then I came across positive psychology at the height of the recession. And so in the same style as this show, we invited in experts from that field to talk about ways that you can take control of your happiness in the midst of financial problems, talk about solutions, and we got the greatest viewer response of the year. And so to me, that was proof positive that people are hungry for the science, that it's not just about, hey, think positively, man, and everything's going to be okay. <laughs> I want to know exactly what I can do and what the tangible impact it will have. So now, you know, we work with um, large organizations. We uh, brought some of this research to Nationwide Brokerage Services, which is a wholly unnecessary of Nationwide Insurance, and they applied it pervasively in their organization. I'll give you a quick example. They did something called the Morning Huddle. First thing in the morning, sales teams got off the phone, which is how they make their sales, and they got together to talk about successes that everyone might not have heard about for the past 24 to 48 hours. And they also gave time for anyone who needed a little extra support that day to speak up, and their colleagues would rally around them. Well, that change, along with a handful of other things, they contribute to increasing their uh, new insurance application rate by 237% and revenues by 50% in an 18-month period. Wow. And that's, not, and that's not a small 50%. That's to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. By so a meeting I, change. I, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. a meeting change. Well, and, and, a, and, a, and a very targeted approach. So I, mean, I, think, I think that's it. I think it's, a, it's something we'll naturally pay off. It's, it's, just, it's almost like you've got to retrain your, your mind from doing what's natural and what might feel cathartic, like venting, to something that's more creative. So it might it seems like it might take a little more energy at first, but it'll pay off in the end. Absolutely. Yes. Good stuff. Well, I I appreciate you joining us, Michelle. As I've been looking all through your stuff, I'm I'm I've decided that we are going to have to chase you down again and have this oh, discussion. Wonderful. I want so much more 
because um, real life tools, right? But and with optimism and positivity. So Michelle Gielen, thank you so much for all you do and keep up the great work. And again, I can't recommend more um, this, uh, her book, her website, the book is Broadcasting Happiness and the website is michellegeelan.com. Michelle Gielen, Gielen is spelled G-I-E-L-A-N.com. We're keeping it positive, but, uh, you know, in, in a, in a healthy, realistic optimism, powerful stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Come back to a little coach's corner. This is the Matt Townsend show. Stick with us, helping you, uh, live a healthier, happier life. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, um, again, for some of you out there that, uh, that really like being the pessimist, you might be sitting here thinking, this is just all too positive. I can't stand this guy. The reality of um, what what we're finding is, and remember, for years when we were studying psychology, we would study it through kind of a lens of abnormal psychology. We would only study people that had major, you know, abnormal issues or um, it, you know things that they were dealing with. We would we would talk and focus about those that would hear things, those that would you know couldn't couldn't keep a job, those that were constantly having problems. But what they found out is um, when you're studying psychology, it's just as important to study not just the broken side of life, but the success side of life. What, what actually is producing results for other people? That form of study is called positive psychology. People that feel really positive in life do things differently than those that feel really negative in life. We think positivity is the norm, a lot of people would think, right? So historically, we would study the negative people, and we've got for years, you know, decades, a lot of information and theoretical approaches for how to deal with the abnormal, the negative side of of people's lives. However, People that are really have a lot of energy and excitement and joie de vivre for life, right? Um, those people do something different than those that don't have the energy, that don't have optimism, that don't have flow, don't feel like they're living in a kind of an optimal life. That's all that our last guest, Michelle Gielen, was talking about. And I've seen it change couples, for example, incredibly. When a couple comes in and talks to me, they can talk on two sides of an issue. It's the same issue, right? So if the issue is about money, which tends to be the number one thing couples say they can't talk about, you can come in and we can then spend the next hour focusing on the fact that we don't have money. And he spends the money and he buys video games and we don't even have time and money for it. And he should be working. And we talk about everything that doesn't work with the video game. Um, and that's where a lot of times the conversation goes. And we go there because we think we're going to solve the problem. That will solve it. By talking about what's broken, we will solve it. The downside to that part of the conversation, though, is it burns us out. And then all of a sudden, nobody has any more energy to deal with any more talk about money. 
And it's one way to blow that up is just then he might fight back and say, are you kidding me? Who bought a $400 purse? My video games only cost five, 50 bucks. I can buy eight video games for your purse. It's not a purse. It's a bag. And now we're fighting about purses and bags and video games. It's all on not just the negative side, but it's on the problem side is what I might call it. However, that's not what they want. What they want is the peace of financial stability. What they want is to know this person wants to know that they're safe financially. They want to know that they can talk about it and they're on the same page. So what I found is a lot of times you can cut through hours of fighting, hours of smoke, I call it, hours of starvation, if you would just start to listen for what they really want. When the wife brings up financial problems, what she really wants is financial peace. If she would bring financial peace as a discussion and we talk about how we can create more financial peace – and safety, and security, and a savings account, then we can start getting into the solutions. Instead, because we're so hurt and afraid and and we are scared, we start from the negative side, and then we have to dig ourselves out of the negative hole. Does that make sense? It's called, it's the appreciative approach. It's, It's not being positive. It's actually just talking about what you want instead of what you don't want. If you keep talking about what you don't want, you reinforce what you don't want, and amazingly, it appears. It self-fulfills. But if what you want is financial stability, if what you want is that we're on the same page, if what you want is that I want to see that we're both productively working together to get our money and and we're saving it, Um, I want that we have similar values financially, have those conversations. Well, yeah, it's easy for you, but you're not married to my wife who spends like crazy. Here we go. Make sense? It's not just a bunch of positivity, I promise. It's a bunch of productivity. It's more productive to discuss real-life solutions on the, on the positive side. It works, and it does a body good. We'll take a break, folks. Uh, pretty powerful stuff. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. What impact are all these judges having on us? None of you are, you know, really impacted by a judge, are you? Yeah. We all are. And not just at the Supreme Court level. I mean, just the decision uh, that of uh, gay marriage. That Just remember the impact that that had on your community, on discussions in your community. You know, a decision, it's, it does get the, dis- the conversations going, right? It gets us talking. And, um, and, and I think there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in being able to discuss stuff. In fact, I'm convinced if we could communicate better, we wouldn't be as impacted by the justices. One of the things I've been learning a lot about the Supreme Court is they really are a very unified body in that they have a rule, for example, 
that when they hear um, – and this is when they're in chambers, not in front of everybody. But when they, when they go through and, make, and have discussions about certain issues, they have a rule that everybody at the table has to answer and give their opinion about the issue before anyone can give a second opinion. So nobody can have two comments until everybody's had one comment, which is a really cool principle. And I think the, their ability to maybe think through it, uh, to talk without necessarily having to react to everything, um, it's, I, I think if we could understand how they do it behind the scenes, we might value some of their decisions more. I get, too, that you have your issues and everyone has their position, but, but uh, there's also something to see there. And I saw a story that I wanted to bring to all of our attention about a judge in Georgia – in Bibb County, Georgia, um, Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin, w- there's a viral video out with her, with Verda Colvin um, discussing the consequences with some wayward kids. They they were in a program. She was a she's in her robes. They're in the courtroom, and she has two sides of the courtroom. The girls are on one side. Young men are on the other side. Uh, Judge Verda Colvin is a is a African American female. And she's talking to a room predominantly of African-Americans. And um, it was, I think, one of the most beautiful sites, I think, of of a judge and the power of a judge as she's arguing and making an argument in front of these kids that are in trouble. They're, They're in one of those programs that they're trying to get them some reality. And let me just play a few of um, of her points. One of the first things she's telling him is, "You're going to have a choice here. You're you're either going to end up in court, or or a body bag." You can have the ultimate experience. You can be in this body bag, and the only way somebody will know you're in here is by this tag that'll have your name on it. What do you want to do? That's the question you have to ask yourself. What do you want to do? What? That's what you might want to start doing. Because listen to me. The way you're going, you will go to jail. Or you will get up in this body bag. Hmm. She also uh, is, is pleading with them to be something. You're special. You're uniquely made. Stop acting like you're trash and putting pictures of yourself on the internet. Stop being disrespectful to your parents. Care about your future. Be somebody. Anybody can be nothing. It doesn't take anything to be nothing. Be something. Do you understand what I'm saying? Care about yourselves. The fact that you're shedding tears means you want to be better and you want to do better. Do it. The only person stopping you is you. Do better than what you've been doing. Do you understand me? Mm. Don't you love that? This is this is a civil servant helping you parents raise your kids, helping all of us. I mean, think about it. If you had a child that was wayward and struggling, wouldn't you love a judge like Superior Judge, uh, Court Judge Verda Colvin telling your kids this? Um, another thing she says is don't let your school or don't let your family become an excuse but you don't have to make a decision that you're going to do something different. And don't use your family situation as an excuse. You hear me? 
Don't use that as an excuse. I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know where you live, but don't use it as an excuse. Anything either of you all are going through, somebody else went through it who's successful now. Mm, last but not least, she's going to help all of us remember that we're special. Nobody else can do what you're supposed to do in this world. Nobody else. And if you don't do it, we won't have it. I, I continue to believe one reason why our society is so messed up, because some people who were supposed were born to do certain things just dropped the ball. They didn't do it. And so for every person who didn't do what they needed to do because they were given unique gifts and talents, we're missing something as a society. Mm. An eight-minute speech by Bibb County Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin. We're special. You've got to deliver something. If you don't deliver it, guess what? Nobody does. We don't get it. And kids, you have a choice. Court, at this rate, you're going to be in court and jail or you're going to be in a body bag. I love it. I guess that's judicial activism. Yeah, everybody needs to hear it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, you know, you think about it, it's just easy to say, well, you know, if these people would just, uh, you know, save their money, they wouldn't get in this trouble and then they wouldn't have kids that have behavior problems. Oh, great. Easy for you to say. Again, most of us, I don't feel, truly get what it feels like to... um, to be completely underwater financially, you know, where you've got four lives hanging on your paycheck and it's already 30, 40 percent below what you need. So let's be careful not to judge. Let's be careful not to not to just quickly critique and assume that this is just simply because people love to spend money and they don't have self-discipline. There are a lot of heroes that I think if we could go and look at, you know, maybe the average worker at a fast food restaurant, a mother with a couple children at home trying to make a living. And again, you may not like these minimum uh, uh, minimum wage options that are being proposed out there. And again, I'm a business owner too. I'm not a, I don't love being told exactly how much I have to pay somebody. When I have to have the discussion with my son to come vacuum my office and um, he asks me, how much will you pay me? And I tell him minimum wage and he's like, yeah, no, not doing that. I won't. I won't work for that. And I'm like, you're 14, boy. (laughs) This was a few years ago. You're 14. Well, I can get 10, you know, working on a food truck. No, you can't. Well, yeah, I can. Well, he got his job. He got a job this summer. And uh, he's going to wash cars for just a, under minimum wage but some tips. Went to his first day of school or of, of work. Came home that night. How'd it go, son? Yeah, I want a new job. It's interesting. Work is hard. But uh, be grateful for what you do have, right? You If you have the blessing or the benefit now to actually be ahead financially or just breaking even financially, it's a huge benefit to you that you may not even understand. People that have money live longer. Well, duh, because they can just sit at the beach and maybe. But some of it's simply because when you have money, you live in a different location. You live in a healthier place. 
data has existed uh, from the American Medical Association talking about the fact that simply where you choose to live in the country will determine your life expectancy too. Right? This is this is the diet you're going to end up participating in. This is the the friends your kids are going to have. Smoking, drugs, alcohol, all of those things decline when you have more income, interestingly. Would you believe that? According to a study in 2010, uh, in the annual review of sociology, poorer people are more likely to smoke and drink in excess, which are both potential causes of dying younger. So there's a lot of this that's tied to your income. Exercise. People with more money are more likely to exercise. Well, sure, they got the time. That's totally true. The exercise, a lot of the the um, poorer people might get is running to the bus that then has to drive them for two hours to their job. That's their exercise. They sit more time probably on mass transit trying to get to their home that's affordable. And wealthier people have the luxury maybe of just getting in a car or taking a shorter ride to their home. They're able to live maybe closer to work. Statistically, uh, their uh, wealthier people are more educated, which decreases uh, or increases your re- your revenues, your incomes. There's a ton of benefits to it, and wealthier people have more access to health care. And when we now find out that your debt and your debt load impact your child behavior, kids whose parents have unsecured debt, who are constantly trying to get the credit card bills paid, who are going to payday loans, those their kids are going to struggle. Which came first, the kid or the payday loan? I would apparently argue it's the debt. And there's a million reasons why people are in debt. Remember that. We are so quick to judge and we can't just judge. If we want to create a healthier community, then let's go fight for better rules, better laws to manage what people can charge as interest. I mean, I guess it's beautiful to just have capitalism, but there's a cost to capitalism that we are now maybe learning and some of the costs to some forms of capitalism or at least just extreme money-making mentalities is simply it might be impacting our health and our and our behavior of our children. I mean, let's just look at it. You don't have to love it, but we can start to figure out why some people just can't seem to get out of this hole instead of having an immediate reaction that, oh, they're just not trying hard enough. Let's reverse it. Let's, wouldn't that be a great test? Reverse it for real. Have all of Congress go live in an inner city. Let's see how they handle it. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. It's out there, and you're part of it. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Are you waiting for your relationship to get better? Are you praying more and you know submitting and and hoping that your partner will just change? You know, maybe that maybe there's just this miracle 
that will just change or that the conflicts that you have will go away. Well, things aren't going to get better until you take actions to change the things that you need to change. Our next guest is a Christian author of the book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage Because a Great Relationship Doesn't Happen by Accident. Her name is Sheila Ray Gregoire, and she um, she's back. She's with us. She, she's been having a major battle of... Uh, of laryngitis. Sheila Ray, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks. It's great to be here, and it's good to have my voice back. <laughs> it was so great. Last time we called you, you're, you were just... You, it, it, yeah, you, it was like, it was sad. I felt bad for you. <laughs> good to have you here, Sheila. Talk about um, your title of your book, I love, because great relationships, they, they don't happen by accident. It seems like we think love should be easy, when really it's pretty difficult. Well, it is, but... Here's the thing. It isn't always difficult in the long run. What I found is that my marriage is really tough in the beginning, but once we put these these habits in place and started thinking differently, it's like things become automatic and it's so much easier now. So so while yes, I believe love is tough and it takes a while to get to that place, once you get to that place, it is lovely Boom. indeed. Yeah. And it's I guess one of the things you're focusing on I guess it's one thing to focus on our actions, what we're doing, but maybe the most important do to doing to focus on would be our thinking, how we think about our partner. Yeah, because when I when I first got married, we had a really rocky transition. I brought a ton of baggage into my marriage, and then I found in our intimate life was really not working well. It was uncomfortable, and he wanted it all the time, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. <laughs> and then we we tend to pray these really counterproductive prayers. Yeah. We, you know, we, we pray, oh God, you know, help my husband to change, or help him <laughs> to understand me. Get and, a hobby. Yeah, and, and just do all of these things to change him, and then we start to believe that there's nothing that I can do to make this better, and we figure that God is on our side, because God loves me, so why wouldn't he want me to be happy? And I prayed those prayers for years, and it didn't do any good until one day I just had this thought, which was, if God made marriage to be great, and if God made intimacy to be great, then why would I want to miss out on it? There you and go. So why am I waiting for my husband to change? Why aren't I doing what I can? And that's actually really empowering, you know, because if you think the only way to get happy is for someone else to change or for God to send a light, lightning bolt down from heaven, <laughs> then you could be waiting a long time. Yeah, yeah, and it's not I mean, it's in your circle, right? It's in it's in something you can influence today is you where I can't always get my partner to think the way I think maybe ever. I mean, it may not ever happen. <laughs> actually. Right. Yeah. Right. One of the things, uh, th- these are each different thoughts that that we ourselves, you're saying, can kind of control. Um, one of the thoughts that you talk about is that my husband can't make me mad. Yeah. And that's a tough one to swallow, isn't it? Yeah, that's a hard one. Because <laughs> we think they they not only can, but they do make me mad because I wasn't mad till my wife came home. <laughs> Exactly. And, and, and I'm not saying that your husband doesn't do bad things. Right. Or that your husband doesn't do things that's wrong. In fact, later in the book, I talk about how to confront someone when they do do something wrong. I'm just saying that the decision to get ticked off is really in your hands. Yeah. It's, it's not what he does. It's what you're thinking. And one of the biggest revelations I had was that quite often the times that I was getting ticked off, it wasn't actually to do with Keith. 
it was more to do with what was going on in my life. Um, cause, and, and, and some of you women listening, you've probably experienced this, okay? So one night your husband comes home like 20 minutes late for dinner, doesn't bother you at all, you've kept dinner warm, you know, you all sit down at the table, it's absolutely fine. Another night he comes home 20 minutes late, and you have been waiting at the door for the last <laughs> 17 minutes, and you have texted him six times, and you are livid. <laughs> right. But... It's, he did the exact same thing both times. It's just that maybe that second time, you know, little Katie had to be at gymnastics at 7 o'clock and little Ricky had to be at karate at 7.05 and you still had homework to get done and you were really stressed. And so the issue wasn't with your husband. The issue was, here's what's going on in our lives. Hmm. And when I started realizing that, you know, sometimes I get ticked off because I am overworked or I'm tired or I'm feeling guilty about something and I project it onto Keith, and it's not always what Keith's doing. Right. I mean, because life is is complicated, right? And and it, it's kind of compounding, but it's almost like maybe once you've crossed that boundary um, where you do blame your partner, it seems like your brain says, okay, yeah, that'll work. That's an easy <laughs> out. And we just, it gets easier to go there every time. Well, yeah, because then we feel morally superior, right? Right. I love feeling morally superior. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. But it's it, it really it's a, it's kind of a tangled web because we want our thinking, we want to have control of our thinking, but the only thing we can control it with would be our thinking. Yeah, and and so you do you need to take those whenever you get ticked off, just take a deep breath and say, "Okay, what's going on in my life right now?" You know, what's going on with me? Because sometimes the issue is with you. And and then sometimes it's not. Like sometimes your husband maybe is being really insensitive. Um, sometimes he might be doing things that really do honestly take you off. Yeah. But then the best thing to do is to start asking, okay, what is he doing that's right? And how can I focus on the things that he's doing well instead of only the things that he's really bugging me about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and then maybe change the direction of it and and, and change it. One of the another point you bring up that I think is pretty interesting is this idea that you can't I can't mold my husband into my image, which just seems like no one would intentionally say, Oh yeah, I'm trying to make him just like me. But we, we're mad at the weirdest things that our partner – that they're doing, right? And we're mad that they're not doing it like us. So really we are trying to mold them. Yeah, like you just – you want your husband to be the kind of person that when you got married you pictured he would always be because we all have these expectations. And the thing is he can't become that because often our expectations are really unrealistic. Now, like I said – Often there's really big things in marriage that need to be confronted, and, and I'm not saying that that's not true. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying that sometimes you need to take responsibility for your own feelings. I mean, he- here's an example. Let's say that you spend your whole life cleaning everything, and nobody else in the family lifts a finger. And you're really frustrated about this, and you're really mad, and doesn't anybody see that I work all the time and nobody helps me? And you can get angry about that, and you can think that you want your husband to change all you want, but you can't make him want to clean. What you can do is stop cleaning so much. Right. <laughs> you can take a step back, and you can stop over-functioning, because whenever you over-function, and whenever you do more of what you should be doing, then you allow other people, like your kids, to underfunction. <laughs> so... If yeah. you want them to step up to the plate, sometimes we have to step back. That's true. And because if, if you're overdoing it, if you're over managing and you're frustrated about it, 
um, then do something different. Yeah, instead of waiting for other people to suddenly get this gene that says, I love cleaning, <laughs> which is never going to happen. Right. You know, you need to change the patterns in your life. And that's, that's the main thing I'm saying is look at the patterns in your relationship and figure out how can I change what I am doing. Oh, that's brilliant. And I mean, really, and patterns, it's a great way to look at it, right? Like the systems, the habits, the patterns. If you continually have the same emotional breakdown or frustration by something, don't just assume everyone else is the problem. Start thinking about how you're approaching that issue. Yeah, because when we do too much, we allow other people to do too little. <laughs> exactly. No, that's great. Let's take a break. Um, we're learning a lot and experiencing some uh, some some interesting change of patterns possibly for us here. Uh, joining us again is Sheila Ray Gregoire. She is the author of the book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage Because a Great Relationship Doesn't Happen by Accident. She's a mother, a blogger, a public speaker, and the author of eight other books. And uh, we'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion. Stick with us, helping you live longer and love stronger. That's the goal of the show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Sheila Ray Gregoire. She is the author of the book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage Because a Great Relationship Doesn't Happen by Accident. You can find out more about her work at SheilaRayGregoire.com and uh, just has a ton of great resources on her website as well. Um, fun, fun insights. Sheila, welcome back to the show. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Hey, talk to us. Uh, one, another one of your thoughts is that you you are not, I am not in competition with my husband. So one of the nine thoughts that can help us um, change our marriages, would I guess, would be don't compete. Yeah, because I think often what we figure, especially as wives, is like if there's a disagreement, you know, he's got to make the decision or because um, that's what we believe, um, or that, that we're always going to have disagreements, so we have to figure out how, like, who's going who's gonna to end up getting their way. And I think as soon as we think that way, what we've done is we've created this win-lose mentality where it's impossible for you to be in unity. And I find that really, really strange yeah. because God wants us to be in unity. So why do we think that it's so automatic that we're going to disagree? You know? <laughs> right. Like, uh, obviously, people disagree, but there should be a way to resolve those things so that you both can win. And I think too often when we disagree, we're trying to figure out who's right. And as soon as you ask that question, someone's going to lose. Right. Right. And so we've got to stop asking that question and see see our conflicts in a completely different way. Be- because it seems like the very concept that competition is part of this is the thing is probably the reason we need to be married to yeah. to fix that need to compete exactly and and you know you're a team and if you need if you've decided that you need to win every argument with your spouse you're going to end up married to a loser mm-hmm. and nobody wants to be married <laughs> to a loser so let's look at how instead we can both win and we can both feel like okay my spouse has heard me, and we're on the same page. 
And and if, if I mean if tangibly you can't always find an exact win um, that's that's equal or fair, but part of it is just the mere fact. I guess you're saying that there's the process that your process is to be together to find better solutions instead of just the either or. Yeah, and I and I and let me just give you a really practical example because I don't think people quite know what I'm talking about here. Let's say let, let's take a couple, and I, I use this example in Nine Thoughts that contains two marriages. But let's take a couple where she's pregnant with twins. You know, she's going to give birth in about two months, and she's exhausted because she also has a toddler. And how is she going to sleep? You know, she might not sleep for the next two years, <laughs> and she's huge and she's tired. And he's thinking, okay, my family is about to expand to five. I want to make sure we're on good financial ground. There's a new house that's for sale that's really a bargain. I think we should buy it now and stop renting because we're wasting all this money. And so they're having this argument about whether or not they should move. And she's thinking, well, no, because I'm way too tired. I can't handle the stress right now. And he's thinking this is too good an opportunity to pass up, and we need to get on better financial footing. So normally when we hear that, we think, well, yeah, obviously someone isn't going to win there because either they move or they don't. Right. But what if instead of debating real estate, what if they could sit down and say, okay, let's take a huge step back. And what is it that you need right now? And what is it that I need right now? And she could say, well, I just, I just need to feel like I'm not going to be exhausted. I need to feel like I have some support. I need to feel like, you know, I might get some sleep. <laughs> I need to feel like there's going to be people helping me. Mm. And he might say, well, I just need to feel like we have a financial plan and that we're on good financial footing. And when you word it like that, that's a totally different scenario because now you can start brainstorming. Okay, if you need to feel not exhausted, how can we meet those needs? How can we make sure that you're going to be okay? And if he needs to feel financially secure, how can we meet those needs? And maybe they'll think of something totally different than moving, or maybe they will move, but they'll also help her get not exhausted. Right, right. Yeah, you know? it, yeah, that's powerful. And it's a, I call that like the third alternative, right? It's, it's not mine or yours. It's ours. It's something new. And part of this, right. I guess, is just understanding what's the real, real issue deep down inside. Yeah, and the real issue, normally when we figure out what the real issue is, we tend to think it's my husband. Okay, right. the issue here is my husband is hurting me or my husband's being unreasonable, and we call your spouse the issue. <laughs> <laughs> so your spouse is not the issue. The issue is you both have needs that aren't being met. So let's talk about those needs and figure them out rather than debating who's right and who's wrong, because hmm. needs aren't wrong. No, right. It's just, it's, it is what it is. And, but you're right. We end up talking so much in the smoke, I call it, that we, we, we never get down to the real fire, the real thing causing all of this. Mm-hmm. Powerful stuff. What are, what are some other thoughts that we need to make sure we're paying attention to or changing so that the marriage can flow, uh, I guess, more in a more healthy way? Well, the one that, that really um, speaks to so many people is, is that I'm called to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Mm. Because here's the difference. A peacekeeper is someone, picture them you know, on the dividing line between Israel and Egypt. You know, the, the two nations don't like each other. There is a lot of conflict. And a peacekeeper is just trying to stop any overt negative action from, from coming out. So they're just trying to keep a lid on things. A peacemaker instead would be someone like on the border between Canada and the States. You know, we're friends. Yeah. We love each other. We, we're very similar. We don't see each other as enemies at all. And so a peacemaker is someone who says, okay, let's take those issues 
that we do have. Let's take those conflicts and let's work through them so that we're on the same page. And I think what happens in marriage often is that especially women think, all right, I can't bring something up because that would be causing a conflict and conflicts are bad. No, conflicts aren't bad. Conflicts are inevitable. Right. It's how you deal with them that's bad. And if we never, ever discuss things that are bugging us, we're not making peace. All we're doing is covering stuff over, and that's just going to cause you to go further and further apart. Yeah. You're, and that avoidance, um, I mean, it seems like it's working, right? Because we didn't even have a fight today. Yeah. But, but if you're stewing, <laughs> if you're stewing in your thoughts, right, and 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 getting more angry, more frustrated, more lonely, more disconnected, it's it's not going to end well. Right. And if you're in a marriage where there's something really difficult going on, like let's say that your your spouse is flirting with people on Facebook or texting an ex or, you know, watching porn or something like that, you need to deal with that because that's just going to pull you further and further apart and that really endangers the marriage. You know, so part of being a good spouse is when your spouse is doing something that hurts the relationship, you deal with it. If they won't listen to you, you bring in third party. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you draw some serious boundaries, but you say, no, our relationship is worth more than this, and I'm going to fight for our relationship. Oh, that's great. Um, if you, as we wrap it up, if you um, had to think of one thing, I call it the one thing that makes the biggest difference, what would you say is the one thought that that seems to... to you know, pay the biggest dividend if we could just master one idea? I think it's probably thought number nine. The fact is that drifting apart is totally inevitable. You will drift. The only way to stop it is to be intentional about it. And so often we think, oh, I've married my best friend and we're going to be best friends forever. And that's not true. Because if you do nothing to keep that friendship going, you're going to end up so far apart. Yeah, no, it's so true. So every day... Just take time to talk about, hey, what was, what was the best thing that happened to you today? And what, what made you the most upset today? Just know each other's hearts. It doesn't need to take that long. Just check in with each other. Encounter that drift. And then everything else is going to be so much easier. Yeah. And uh, I think that's helpful, too, to just know that the normal would be to drift apart. It's, the abnormal is to stay connected intentionally. Exactly. Hmm. Good stuff. Well, you, you did it. She she was sick a couple of weeks ago. We couldn't we couldn't have her on. But uh, Sheila Ray Gregoire, thank you so much for your great work and and uh, your time. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful. You bet. Good to have you again, everybody. Go check out the website, um, just SheilaRayGregoire dot com. Also, look for the book, um, and the book is fairly uh, basic, along with nine other books. The name of this book is Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. Because a great relationship doesn't happen by accident. Fun stuff, folks. Uh, stick with us. You can also, by the way, go to her blog, to lovehonorandvacuum.com. Great resources uh, to get through sometimes the more difficult things in life, which, you know, are our relationships at times. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, there really are a lot of 
tensions, stresses that you feel, don't you, in your relationship? And, and some don't, right? They're just so happy and content, not knowing how stressed their family is. But um, I don't know. There, I think there comes a point for all of us where we need to, to – um, to take our relationship and and like we were just hearing from Sheila Ray Gregoire and become more intentional in it and, and literally say, I'm going to grow this thing. I've had a really weird um, issue going on in my yard where I, I have a love-hate relationship with my yard, my with my weeds, with my beds, my everything. And interestingly, the the yard starts to resemble – my negative belief system. I don't I don't like my yard. I don't like it. And it doesn't look good. So it's now retaliating. Except for here's the deal. This year, my wife somehow has been able to get me more involved in the yard, like the in the weeding, and get me to become more a part of it. And I've noticed that as I've changed my view about it, that it's not just something to hate. It's probably my yard is something to work with, to understand, and in certain places control, um, then it makes my life a little bit easier. So as I get my boys up, uh, or my wife helps us all get up to go out and the weed, after doing that for a month, once or twice a week, you start to really make your yard look good. And you you start making a dent in the things that you didn't like. And it's just a shift sometimes, a shift in your paradigm, a shift in your view about what you really – what you can do, what you should do, and what's what's working. And I just look at it like the same is true in our marriages. If at some point, instead of just sitting back and assuming that the yard's going to take us over and eventually destroy us, if I would just shift my view – in my marriage, that my marriage isn't here to destroy me. My marriage is here to be an additive part of my life, to teach me certain lessons, to give me some activities to do as well, but to build something with someone else. I can't control it. It's not all up to me. It's just it's just an opportunity to become better, to be better, and to um, to be a little bit different. So Maybe if we see our marriage as, as something that we can work on, something that we can improve, wow, all of a sudden you might grow something you can be proud of. Heaven forbid, you might even start living some principles that you can share with others. So one of the rules that I would – or uh, principles that I would try to live by and a thought that I would try to blow up if I could – is that lasting love shouldn't be this difficult. I'm a big believer that if, just like my yard, if I want my yard to look good, it shouldn't just be easy. It's difficult. Anything that's natural, like a relationship, they're difficult. They're, it's hard to keep up. And if you let it go too far and let it grow too, you know, uh, too um, wild, then all of a sudden you'll pay for it. And if you want to have a chance to have a better approach to anything that's living, you got to understand why it is what, why it's doing what it's doing. We need to spend more time trying to understand 
why our spouses are the way they are. Um, I, I always think of the the metaphor of um, there's so much pressure, there's so much intensity that can go on in a marriage from you know the raising of children and the mistakes that can be made and the communication errors that happen and the misunderstanding, but the goodness and the closeness and the richness and the love and the forgiveness, all of that together creates a pretty intense experience. And it's almost like we think that, you know, that pressure is is not good, but really that pressure creates the gems of our life and of our world. Um, diamonds are created under that pressure. Our, our fine gems are created under such pressure. But it seems like many of us aren't trying to create that gem in our marriage by handling the pressure and managing it. It's almost more like we're just looking for gems. We want to go find the perfect marriage partner and marry that person, just like picking up a diamond off the ground and just not even realizing what it took to make the diamond. I think our responsibility here is with each other is to learn how to make beautiful gems and to turn a marriage that's full of pressure and perfect idyllic opportunities to create something beautiful, and then we ought to create those beautiful things. Uh, one of my favorite um, just authors is Neil Maxwell, and he said um, that this world is like a laboratory, and the people in our lives are the clinical material. Our relationships are the clinical material. So one thought I feel that uh, I need to work on, I'm sure you might feel it as well, is that lasting love shouldn't be difficult. It's, it shouldn't, I mean, it, it should be difficult. Get used to that idea. It's not here to just be easy for you. It's not here to always be perfect. You need the imperfect times to make the gem. Um, another idea we need to blow up is that I know who my partner really is. And I hate to be, uh, you know, the negative Nelly here, but you have no clue who you're married to. Uh, and by the way, neither do they. They don't even know who they are. Most of us aren't really good at identifying what we are and who we are and why we do what we're doing. Really, we're changing constantly. And every day, every new interaction, every new experience changes me. So you can be as frustrated as you want for why your partner does what they're doing. But before you try to just assume you knew them and now they've changed – why don't you go figure out why they're changing? Go figure out what is the draw for why they're you know, moving away from being as religious as they used to be, or why are they um, struggling so much you know, at work and want to change their jobs so quickly. Don't just assume, you wanted to be a lawyer since I first met you. Well, okay, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Go figure out why. Don't just argue that they should stay the same. Because the reality is we're here on earth to progress, aren't we? So if I feel a need to change, you, you probably are going to have to help understand who I am and, and not just not only just freak out about it. Um, pretty important thing. I, and why I say that is I thought I knew who I was until we had a – my daughter had a grandchild uh, for me. She didn't have it for anyone else but me. Um, but it changed me. Honestly, my life changed the minute I became a grandfather because I thought I loved my kids, which I totally do, but I had a whole different purpose as a grandpa, and it changed everything I thought. My my thinking became much more long-term. I got to be there to raise this girl and to be a part of her life, and I got to create more time in my schedule. All these things needed to change because of this one stage I'm going through. 
We all are going through these stages. So we're learning one way or another. We're learning. That's the goal of the show is to give you the tools you need when you need them so that you can live healthier, happier lives. We'll take a break. Come back, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be back. <laughs> 